This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Good morning, I'm Chuck Octagon from the Underground. Today, we present you a special report covering the last several years in Redline history. Since 2016, events in the greater Boston area seem to be leaning towards the bizarre and unexplainable. From the Redline incorporating as its own city to a team of refugees being evicted and taking up refuge in an abandoned cheese-themed amusement park to robotic refuses of the same theme park becoming the cheese-headed enforcers of Train Town. It's been strange, unusual, odd, It's been, quite frankly, a lot. Yes, it seems as if the greater Boston area is a lot greater than it used to be. We here at Team Subterranean have been hard at work researching the answers, looking up public records, and even listening to podcasts. One in particular, completely convoluted, to say the least. All in the name of providing you with answers. We've done the work so you don't have to, and now we're here with this special report to summarize just what the hell is so great about Greater Boston. First, we hear from guest correspondent on the street and a woman who needs no introduction, Mallory, who will take us through the time before the major turning point of the story, the Red Line Referendum. First off, you gotta know about this fucking guy named Leon, the human equivalent of a grandfather clock. If you came up to me and were like, Mallory, you can take a bet on anything in the world, and if you win, you get $1 million, and if you lose, we take all your animals away to a puppy mill. What do you want to bet on? I'd probably bet that Leon measured the exact number of bran flakes for every breakfast he ever ate. And he sure as shit ate bran flakes, because he was sure to know when his shit was sure to hit, if you know what I mean. If nothing else, that motherfucker was regular. Anyway, back when I worked at Wonderland, he looked down the first big drop and decided he'd rather die than leave his shit to chance. He didn't kill himself or anything dramatic. He looked at the drop, wasn't feeling it 100%, and just fucking croaked. Nope. End of story. Actually, no, not end of story. Beginning of story. His sister Nika's sitting there, and she's losing her shit, just staring at floppy dead Leon feeling like sidewalk-fried dog shit because she convinced him to go on the coaster in the first place. Leon's relationship with this photographer chick named Louisa just blew up, and Nika wanted to boost his spirits. Don't ask me why she didn't buy him a new closet organizer or one of those things you hang up by the door to slip your fucking shoes into. Seems like he'd like that more, but fuck do I know. So Nika won't get out of the roller coaster until Leon's best friend Michael shows up to take her home. And holy shit, I've seen fucking couch stains that look more put together than this sad-ass motherfucker. Turns out he was couch surfing with Leon after losing his job. He was an alcoholic, and Leon was trying to help band-aid his life back together. But fuck me, Johnson & Johnson don't have enough latex at the factory for this about-to-fall-off-the-wagon sack of sad-ass shit. He takes one look at Leon, and I could almost see his eyes turn whiskey-boozy brown. So he takes Nika home and goes back to Leon's to work really hard at putting the ink in tanked. Meanwhile, this profane, badass bitch of a boss named Jenna calls Leon out of the blue for a job interview. She's got this crystal ball for a work anniversary, and she's thinking about grinding it up and eating it or some crazy shit. 
Instead, she tosses it and it hits a stack of resumes. The ball lands on Leon, so she gives him a call. And drunk as a fucking skunk, Michael picks up and is like, he's dead, why not give me a shot? And the crazy shit is, badass Gemma is all like, sure, why not? I hate my job, and if I have to read another kiss-ass cover letter, I'm going to bite into this crystal ball like an apple. So show up tomorrow, and you're fucking hired, totally obviously hungover half-drunk man. Have a great goddamn day. Meanwhile, Louise is all messed up because she's a wedding photographer, and she just got done working for these people who got married on the red line. Can you believe that? Had to close down an entire leg of the MBTA just so these snotty-nosed pissants can get married, like the most obnoxious party bus ever. And to make it worse... She keeps getting these creepy scheduling messages in her shared Google Calendar from Leon, who pushed her into sharing it because, like, duh, he's Leon. And get this. Out of nowhere, quote-unfucking-quote Leon schedules to come by and pick up his old shit from her place. Louisa doesn't even really like this guy, but his death makes her feel the fucking feels. And just when she's moving on, Leon's ghost schedules in some quality time. I mean, WT fuck. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. Because back at the funeral... Nika is up there blabbing about her other brother, Dimitri. He's that younger brother type that thinks he fucking knows everything and leaves town to conquer the world. Little shit had a big ol' send-off for himself and gave everyone puzzle boxes to celebrate, and then goes looking for Bigfoot or some hippie sci-fi voodoo nonsense. Doesn't find him, but ends up in a submarine or some such bullshit I don't even think I believe. All I know is that he's not there when Nika needs him. Meanwhile, Gemma, that badass bitch who works for Third Sight Publications... Oh, right. They're like a magazine for people who take horoscopes too fucking serious. Gemma is married to this other badass bitch named Charlotte. She's preggers as fuck and riding the red line out of sheer boredom. And she runs into that mayor of the red line guy who has the bird brain batshit idea of taking the red line and turning it into a city. I mean, it's bad enough you turn red line into a wedding. No, this fuckwad wants it to be condos. Anyway, Charlotte's bored as a comatose fuck. So she agrees to help the mayor get his referendum passed, and she draws up all these sick plans of what the city could look like if the shit idea actually passed. And here's the crazy thing. That shit did pass. And I mean that literally and figuratively, because it lands right in the goddamn toilet with the loudest plop possible. Imagine a circus with all the clowns getting drunk and trying to kill each other and substitute trains for tents, and that might give you a general fucking idea. And it mostly goes to hell in a shitbasket, because that mayor asshole just up and leaves as soon as his grand idea goes on the books, and badass prego Charlotte is left holding the fucking bag. Why did it pass? Good question. I mean, you'd be surprised about how many people voted for this bullshit. I voted for it because of her. Charlotte, yeah. She jumped into the subway tracks to heave-ho some dickless frat boy butthole over the yellow line after he free-jumped his ass into unconsciousness, thinking he was all dipshit king of parkour after watching my cousin Jojo jump the gap at Park Street during a rally for the mayor. Meanwhile, guess who else is at that rally? That Nika chick. And just like when she saw her dead brother Leon, she stands there frozen like a fucking freeze-pop in Antarctica. Apparently, she got invited to this seance by this hippy-dippy asswipe at Third Sight named Extinction Event. Anyway... Nika's convinced that Leon wanted to send word to her brother and maybe save someone. Apparently, there's some serious family baggage there, and Nika froze up when Dimitri fell into some ice or some bullshit when they were kids. I don't know, girls got drama. Anyway, she's beating herself up yet again because she doesn't do jack or shit for Dickless McFratfart, the self-appointed asshole king of parkour, and she's feeling even worse for herself because her whole thing was she wanted to be famous or something? 
She's all sad, so she goes to the Charles to throw this message in a bottle to Dimitri, who is still riding around underwater in a submarine, looking for Atlantis like a fucking bitch. And some dude named Terrell, who works at Third Sight, was all sad and thinking of jumping into the river because he was mad at Extinction Event? But I guess somehow, seeing Nika throw that shit like a champ got him to turn it the fuck around. Meanwhile, Michael is working at Third Sight with Extinction Event up his ass so far he could give him fucking five lifetimes worth of proctology exams. And Michael has no idea what he's doing, and there's like fucking boozy traps everywhere. Michael just can't fucking deal. So he dials up old Ding Dong Dead Leon for moral and spiritual support, and that's when he starts emulating his calendar. Yeah, that's right. He's the reason poor Louisa is as confused as a tourist clusterfucking their way through their first New England rotary. But she vows to figure it out and sets out to track Michael down. But first, she runs into badass bitch Gemma, who's exploring the new red line, which is about as chaotic as a barrel full of fucking monkeys in a shitstorm of an earthquake. Someone steals Gemma's crystal, and she's like, become attached to it because it makes her feel better after she gets fired or some shit. I know, she did a complete 180 on that. 180 or 360? 180, I think, but whatever the fuck. She wants the ball back, and Louisa, who gave up being a wedding photographer after that party boss on a train ride to hell wedding, she's ready for something new. So now she's a forensic photographer for Redline, taking pictures of crime scenes, cool shit like that. Meanwhile, badass Gemma organizes the shit out of Hell on Earth Redline while Charlotte rests from delivering the baby. Nika goes bonkers on a train, goes back to Wonderland, rides around like a crazy person until she meets this old dude who says he knows her. She says nope, just like her brother did before he died, and goes for one more ride, throwing that shitty puzzle box clear into the next county. And bitch-ass Dimitri finds some dead people in Atlantis and is like, fuck this, I'm going home. Good luck with that, dude. Your brother is dead and your sister is going to kick your nuts clear out your throat next time she sees you. Oh, and Michael? He runs into the mayor right before he's about to skip town. Mayor of Redline my ass, more like mayor of chicken shit yellow belly line. And good old Michael just got evicted from his place, and he's thinking about drinking because his life just blew clear to shit again. But he doesn't drink because he's like, dude, it's all about choice. Just like you're choosing to be a little fucking chicken shit bitch right now. Which, whatever, dude, if that's what you want, but fucking own that shit, Mr. Fucking Bitch-Ass Shit Heel Mayor of Chicken Shit Yellow Belly Bullshit Town. So yeah, that piece of sad-ass bag of shit Michael ended up being cool in my book. No idea where the mayor went, but fuck that guy, right? W.T. Fuck indeed. As Maller indicated, it's all about choice, dude. And the state of Massachusetts chose that the transit system of the Red Line should be incorporated into its own city. Why? Many people thought it was funny and simply voted it as a lark. Other people just plain old didn't care because they lived nowhere near Boston and thought it would be wicked pissa to F up the T. And still others did care, either because they lived near Boston or didn't live near Boston, but wanted to watch and laugh at the chaos from afar. And chaos there was. For months, the incorporation of Red Line led to bitter arguments, legal disputes, public protests, and even some riots. And through it all, a clear, organizing voice rose from the messiness to take control and maintain order. Charlotte Linzer Coolidge. She was Paul Chelmsworth's urban designer and a former cartoonist, but despite her lack of any kind of believable credentials, she managed to make the city of Red Line work. With ingenious ideas and a calming forcefulness, people respected and listened to. Seven months after the disastrous referendum, interim mayor Lindsay Coolidge was the clear favorite in the upcoming election for mayor. Who else knew the job and had done the work after all? But around this time, strange public stunts and pranks began popping up all over the city, all attributed to a mysterious organization known only as the Lottery. And if that wasn't enough for the interim mayor to deal with, she soon needed to handle some competition. First, local realtor and urban activist Isabel Powell criticized the Lindsay Coolidge's administration 
for its handling of Red Lines Incorporation, noting how segregated the city remained despite the second chance it provided. But soon another candidate appeared, the Red Line Bride, Emily Bespin, funded by a mysterious backer rumored to have controlling interests in local astrology rag, Third Sight Media. Bespin was the co-owner of Wonderland, a defunct theme park her MIT graduate husband Ethan had recently labored to reopen and rebrand with a bizarre cheese theme. But after opening, the park soon stank as if the cheese had been freshly cut, and Emily forged ahead with their plans for Redline, discussing how unsafe it was to contest with Redline riders and hostile protesters like Powell to boot. Michael Tate tried to continue his friendship with Nika Stamatis after the death of his best friend and brother, but Nika was working on, uh, this, this can't be right, an Olive Garden food truck? With Mallory? In the North End? Wow, how did that go down? Maybe it... Anyway, it turns out that was just a cover for something far more nefarious. More on that later. Meanwhile, intrepid reporter Yours Truly Octagon discovered that Lindsay Coolidge lied to my face in an interview when she said that the signs of the lottery were a promotion for her new city. After a dramatic lottery prank, including a vat of molasses on the tracks, which collided with a train carrying the mayor's wife, Gemma, and infant son, Monty, I visited Lindsay Coolidge and told her I would not publish these lies if she refused to marry me and my beloved husband, 7 News camera operator Andy Wood, on her insipid train city, something my seven supervisors were maliciously salivating for. The mayor agreed, but soon after, I was visited by a man with the dubious name of Dipshit, who threatened to release compromising photos of me engaging in the fairly innocuous activity of a sexy pillow fight. I mean, who doesn't love those? At the time, I believed this Mr. Shit was working for the Linzer Coolidge campaign, but later he was the lackey of the mysterious Third Sight publisher, blackmailing me on behalf of the lottery, which he was also funding. Allegedly, in addition to the Bespin campaign, through dozens of shell corporations, discovered by former photographer-turned-private eye Luisa Alvarez, in addition to special RLPD oversight chairperson Gemma Linzer Coolidge. Despite learning of this info, the interim mayor wouldn't act on it, and I was forced to have my wedding in Redline after all although I insisted on a convertible rail car. This all led to the most unfortunate wedding event captured on television, and yes, this includes the aftermath of all seasons of The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. Ladies and gentlemen, we have reached the Octobuckle. What can I say? We were supposed to release doves at the exact moment our redline car passed over the Charles to the open-air train car. Surprising everyone. I, I even hired animal expert extraordinaire and gal pal Mallory to wrangle the doves. But the lottery had other plans, including hooking up a hot-baked bean sprayer to cake our wedding party with ridiculously hot legumes. Several were hurt, including Mallory, who protected both the birds and mayoral candidate Powell. Many homes were destroyed in the process, including Michael Tate's net in Porter Square's Ewok Village. Several stress balls were found in the tracks after. And when Powell's nephew Isaiah arrived, Emily Bestman accused him of the crime. RLPD found dozens of bean cans under the bed, and Jembalinza Coolidge arrested him prompting Isabel to pull a citywide boycott, urging her followers to shut their doors to commuters, something the Bestman campaign used to their advantage, and eventually prompting Charlotte to drop out of the race completely, an event her wife Gemma strongly disagreed with. In seeing Isaiah Powell's arrest, Mr. Dippity Shit, who, by the way, I dipshit you not, changed his name to Dipshit due to an employee vote at Third Sight Media, felt guilty about his collaboration with the evil secret editor. He turned himself into Jemberlin's Coolidge and confessed to being the lottery, even though he was just an unwilling pawn. Little did he know. The mysterious Third Sight publisher, Oliver West, had an insider in the form of his nephew, Philip West who'd been dating Luisa Alvarez to find out how much the Lindsay Coolidge administration knew, and he was the real culprit of the baking disaster, which Nika Stamatis unsuccessfully tried to stop. 
Michael Tate discovered the plot, but Oliver kidnapped him and leaves him in the office, escaping through a gigantic pneumatic tube. But not before Michael sends a cryptic message via his shared Google Calendar with Louisa, which said, Don't trust Phil. Michael, trapped helpless and tied to a chair in an abandoned office. Yikes. I think I did a story on him when he was missing, right? Yes? Okay, good. Nika felt guilty and confessed to Louisa that she was behind the lottery. Mysterious third site publisher Oliver West approached her when she was at her lowest, riding the same retrofitted roller coaster where her brother died. Oliver's plan was to control events before they happened, lending legitimacy to his prognostication paper. And also, he wanted control of Redline, which explains his bid for Bespin. Craving guidance and a place to fit in, Nika did as Oliver asked until she felt like she was going too far. When she went to turn herself in, she learns that her brother, Dimitri, had found D.P. Cooper and turned him into the authorities. Dimitri was trapped in his Alaskan compound after discovering the remains of at, at, Atlantis? Or the Atlantis of the Pacific? Okay, we, we gotta get a story on this Dimitri guy, okay? Let's fix that, yeah. After... After being catapulted out of D.B. Cooper's compound, Dimitri had no choice but to turn him in, propelling him to a level of fame he was uncomfortable with, which made Nika angry all over again. She refused to turn herself in, and at that moment, the reclusive mayor of the Red Line discovered a letter in the bottle meant for Dimitri, thrown into the Charles long ago by Nika herself, carried to his boat anchored by the still-burning Spectacle Island. Reading Nika's words convinced Chelmsworth that it was time to come home and make amends. Whew, that's... That's a lot of stuff. But if you think that's something, wait until you hear the rest. Nicole Fanzarelli is here to catch us up on all that went down after this incredible turn of events. Nicole? Thanks, Chuck E. Cheese. Never call me that again. Time to recap this series of misadventures since I jumped on the scene. I met Dimitri on the trash reality show Inexplicable Riddles. I was cast as his sister, Nika Stamatis. Finding D.B. Cooper elevated him to a level of fame and led to TV offers. And he thought, since his sister always wanted to be famous, he'd offer her a chance to be on the show. He sent word he even went to look for her in Boston, but he didn't find her. And the whole time he had yet to learn that his brother Leon had died. So, I got cast as fake Nika on Inexplicable Riddles, which prompted Dimitri to threaten to quit the show. Of course, if he did that, he'd be owned by studio suits until they wring whatever he was worth in television gold out of him. I tried to explain that to him, tried to work through his problems, but he freaked out on me. Later, he found out his brother had died, though, and kind of needs me to, like, sit in for her. It was a weird moment, but it made him kind of endearing in my eyes. We planned to continue the show, head back to Boston, and find the mayor of the Red Line. Dimitri said he'd look for his real sister while he's back in town. Meanwhile, that Michael guy is still tied up and trapped in the old third side office. He gets loose and, I kid you not, runs straight through a wall and finds a fairly good supply of food. And the food keeps coming via a pneumatic tube. But to top it all off, he finds a crystal ball, and when he picks it up, he talks to his dear old dead friend, Leon. Yeah, one thing that Chuck Fuck forgot to tell you? Oliver West was using the dead spirit of Leon Stamatis to do a lot of his plotting and scheming, using Tate as bait. Wait, what? Yeah, he threatened to fire him or worse if Leon didn't cooperate. Leon mostly just, well, narrated, but gave up some harmless info, too. Michael is naturally overwhelmed after reconnecting with his friend, but then he starts getting a little too attached. The ball starts taking him over, and Leon soon realizes that the ball has an additive quality. Michael starts acting more and more like Leon, which is no bueno. Dipshit gets visited by a guy named Lawyer, who 
isn't a lawyer. He threatens to upend Dippy's polycule family if he doesn't tell the truth about his involvement with the lottery and Isaiah Powell. Dippy sticks it out for the moment, but eventually is convinced to confess by Gemma. And Isaiah is freed. He's a little mad at his aunt for making her campaign all about him, but they reconcile and figure a way forward. Isabel still plans to win, but Emily Bespin has a new assistant helping her, named Nika Stamatis, who is shaping up her campaign. Except Nika is actually doing the job to get information to supply to her secret contact, Louisa Alvarez, and Gemma Linder Coolidge, who doesn't trust Nika one bit as a result of her ties to the lottery. Oliver ends up at his secret bunker, but gets paid a visit by the same group who approached dipshit in jail. This guy named Sales says he represents Legion and encourages him to visit Ethan Bespin, who left his wife a robot duplicate of him, prompting her to spill over the deep end a bit. He's back in his lab at Wonderland, so Oliver heads out that way. Me and my bud Dimitri shoot our show about the mystery of the disappearing mayor of the Red Line and almost instantly find him. I roast the mayor for a bit and find out he's been in touch with the bride he left at the altar. He also gives me the note he got from Dimitri and asks me to hand it off to him. Oh yeah, that's after Dimitri just kind of splits and goes looking for Nika. He has his reasons. I may have sent him a coded message using the mayor as a pretense. He's not going to reconcile with her on TV, and he doesn't want to, so good for him. Mallory meets up with Dimitri and helps him out giving him the keys to the Olive Garden food truck so he has a place to crash. They share a weird bond because they both love exploring abandoned subway tunnels and every day is an adventure with Mallory. It shouldn't work, but it does. Cute. Emily gets drunk and confesses to Nika that she spray-painted her own big red missing person after Ethan went missing and left her a cheese robot replica. This prompted Gemma and Louise to investigate, which they're still doing. But now their investigation is focused on where Emily is getting all the money to bring a minor league baseball team to Redline, the Yard Goats. It seems like the mysterious Bespin benefactor is still in play. Plus, this was one of Charlotte's ideas that Emily just up and steals. Leon takes control of Michael by sharing memories of his death, which causes Michael to send the crystal ball through a pneumatic tube, ending up in the third site parking lot. He's eventually found by Dipshit, who went looking for answers with Isaiah. After picking up the ball... Dipshit sees a flash of an image, Wonderland. So, he and Isaiah go check it out. There they spy Oliver, meeting with Ethan, who is busy tinkering away at a new line of cheese robots. After a tense introduction, they agree to work together after Oliver proposes the trains in Redline could run on automation. They catch Dipshit and Isaiah spying on them and kidnap Dippy while Isaiah gets away. This is how the crystal ball ends up in the hands of Ethan Bespin, and Ethan has plans for it. He thinks he can harness the power to make his cheese creations even more predictable and efficient. And it turns out he's right. The election happens. Emily wins. Things are bad. Sales and lawyer meet with Oliver and Ethan and introduce themselves as members of Legion, the world's largest corporation. They have big plans for Redline, and they like Oliver's automation idea. They think the crystal ball has great potential, too, but they're worried Wonderland is compromised. Ethan doesn't want to leave, but Oliver convinces him it's for the best and will only be temporary. They set Ethan up in a lab near MIT, and he experiments with the ball on their captive dipshit. Michael learns that Phil plans to go to a Star Trek convention and sends Louisa a coded message using his numbers and, I think, Klingon or something, to arrest him once he's there. Gemma and Louisa set a trap and bring Phil down. 
But this inadvertently cuts off Michael's food supply line. That's right, Phil had been ordering groceries to get delivered, and with him out of pocket, Michael begins to starve. Grim. Citing rail home contracts, Emily announces that anyone who supported the disruption of Redline service would be evicted. In response, and freshly inspired after meeting Tim Russ at the convention, Isabel declares to her followers that it's not an eviction, but an exodus. Those getting kicked out seek refuge in Wonderland, which greatly angers Ethan. Worse still, Oliver pushes Ethan to attend a date night with the mayor, and while they're gone, Gemma and the others break into Ethan's lab and free dipshit, taking him back to Wonderland. Legion cut Oliver off, but he makes a deal with them. Wonderland in exchange for a seat at the table. He'd left Wonderland to Phil, and given that Oliver West is technically dead, it's up to Phil to turn it over to Ethan and Emily, as long as Phil gets out of jail and is supplied with a redline job as a cop. Michael nearly starves to death, but in the last moment, Dimitri rescues him out of sheer happenstance, offering him escape in the form of some gogurt. And after weeks of pursuing Dimitri with no luck, I decide to ask Nika if she'd like to go in on a show with me. Instead, she goes to visit Dimitri at Wonderland, and they hash out their differences. They also open a letter their brother had sent them from the afterlife, urging them to find him and release him from his spherical prison. And they open the puzzle boxes Dimitri gave them all as going-away presents before going on his initial adventure of sasquatching and submarine riding. Nika's box opens to reveal a tea token. Dimitri's reveals a submarine. Leon's reveals a crystal ball. All of them predict the future. They depart, still wounded from each other, but vowing to work on their relationship. As Gemma and Isaiah vow to return to Redline and fight Emily's increasingly fascist rule, catering to the rich and powerful, the cheese robots take over the entire train service. The former drivers are either fired or recruited into service roles. Nika is sent to jail, arrested by Phil, because Emily has learned of her betrayal, and we get a hint that the cheese bots might have a bit too much of Leon in them. What happens when they all decide to up and nope? Probably nothing good, right? Well, find out soon, because that brings us up to speed to mostly current day events. Yep. Yeah. Succinct. Straight to the point. No problems, right? Chuck? Thank you, Nicole. Questions? Good. I know. It's very clear and very thorough, with no confusion whatsoever. You're welcome. Don't ask us for any clarity either, because you will find none here other than what we tried to provide. See you tomorrow on The Underground Today. Season 4, coming September 13th, 2022. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. In the alley, the scent is stronger, overpowering. As I watch, the overhead lamps flicker and wink out one by one. God damn it. No. The girl appears briefly under the last streetlight, the headphones snug against her ears, the Walkman clasped to her hip. She's oblivious as she walks, lost in her own world. Hey, stop! I need to talk to you! Then she's swallowed up by the darkness again. Helen! Wait a second! It strikes her in the gloom so fast she barely has time to scream. She falls into the edge of the lamplight and lies there, bleeding, motionless. The man's skin is scaly, flaking, and there are patches of soot on his cheeks. 
He stares at me with eyes like midnight. Eyes that are devoid of remorse, devoid of humanity. He's one of them. I turn and run, and I don't look back. The Road of Shadows, a new mystery and suspense audio drama by Mark R. Healy, creator of The Strata. Listen now at theroadofshadows.com. Thank you.